If you're new with us, we've been going through the Bible together. We've got this little thing. It's uh, out on the front table. You can grab one, and there's a PDF on our website. It tells you each day what to read in the Bible, and everybody in the church is reading the same thing each day. And then on Sunday, I teach from something that you read that week. So if you're keeping up, you're in the book of John now, which is awesome because I love the book of John. Let me tell you a little bit about how it fits into the Bible. In the New Testament, which starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are four of the same. They're all four stories about Jesus' life. Matthew wrote one, his perspective. Mark wrote his perspective. Luke, Luke wasn't there, so to him it's a history. But John was there, he wrote his perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered, well, the theologians call them the synoptic gospels, which basically means they all have the same perspective. But John, they put it into its own category. If you were to line up Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would see sections for each one that would overlap. Like, okay, John's talking, uh, Mark's talking about the feeding of the 5,000, and Luke is talking about the feeding of the 5,000, and it's very similar. Or Matthew's talking about the healing of the leper, and Luke's talking about the healing of the leper, very similar. And a lot of them line up. But if you go into John, He's got a bunch of stuff that none of the other guys talk about. So his is unique, and I like his for that and for other reasons. His is more philosophical than the others. His is deep. The others are just telling stories. But John is giving philosophy, which I like. Uh, John was probably the youngest disciple. He was the one that was really close to Jesus. He's the one that people think was the one leaning on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. So his relationship with Jesus was a bit more intimate, and you can see that in the book of John. It's a very intimate look at the person of Jesus. That's the one we're looking at today. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, two of those three, give us the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus' parents, their parents, their parents, all the way back to Adam. But John does it differently. Instead of giving the human genealogy of Jesus, John gives us the divine genealogy genealogy of Jesus. It's like Matthew, Mark, and Luke want to show us the man Jesus. John wants to show us the divine Jesus. And that's another reason I love John so much. It starts out, the book of John, with the three most famous words, in my opinion, in the Bible. In the beginning. And he said, Steve, I thought those were the first three words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Exactly. And John, being an observant Jew, probably having the Old Testament, that portion memorized, you know he took, he took those words on purpose to grab everybody's attention. He wanted to mirror Genesis. And that's what we see in the first several verses of John. Listen in. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So what I've got for you in your handout, if you picked one up when you came in this morning, and if not, I'll put it up on the screen. I've got a chart to show you the parallels, or at least some of them, between Genesis and John. And remember, he's doing this on purpose. He wants to draw our attention to Genesis and show some similarities and to teach us new things, which he does. So in the Genesis column, on the left-hand side, you would write the words, in the beginning. And then in the John column, on the right-hand side, you would write the words, in the beginning. 
to show it's exactly the same, where they line up. Back to the left-hand side. Under the Genesis column, the next thing that's mentioned in Genesis is God. In the beginning, God. So your next column, you'll have God. In the John column, you're going to have the Word. So even though there's a lot of other words up on your screen there, in the left column, just put God, and in the right column, just put the Word. I'll explain all this other stuff in a moment. Underneath that, in the Genesis column, it'll say God created the heavens and the earth, because that's what the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how Genesis 1 opens. In John, it says through the word, all things were created. There's the change. So instead of God creating, specifically, it says the word created. And then in your last column, last row, God said, let there be light. That's on the Genesis side. And then on the John side, in him was life, the true light. So John is taking the teachings of Genesis, incorporating them into his gospel, and then adding some different information. That's what I want to talk to you about, this different information. Some of this will be new to you. Hopefully some of it won't. As I've told you in the past, in the Hebrew Bible, those three words in the beginning are one word. And then the, it says God in English like this. G-O-D. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's not what it says in the original. In the Hebrew, it's actually the plural form of the word God. Steve, are you saying there's more than one God? No. There is only one God. But he uses a plural word for himself. Now, why does he do that? In Genesis, it's not explained why, but it's a mystery. For whatever reason, the very first time God's word is used, the, the word for God is used in the Bible, it's in the plural. And then it gets even, even weirder. The second word in the Hebrew Bible is this. Okay, remember, in English, in the beginning, that's one word in Hebrew, breshit. The second word is bara. In the Bible that you read, it's created. So your Bible says, in the beginning, God created. In the Hebrew Bible, it says, he created. This is important. It's third, masculine, singular. In English, it just says created. They created, we created, she created, he created, anybody could have created in the English word. But in the Hebrew word, it can't be they, it can't be we, it can't be she, it can't be it. It is only he created. This Hebrew word is not to create, it's not created, it's not was created, it's two English words, he created. So, you pick up the Bible for the first time, you read it in Hebrew, and it says, in the beginning, God's, he created the heavens and the earth. And you go... That doesn't make any sense at all. And as you read through the Bible, God constantly refers to himself in the singular and in the plural. And then there's this being in the scriptures called the messenger of God who speaks as God's representative. God sent me to tell you something. And then he speaks in the first person as if he were God. Like you see that at the burning bush passage? 
It says, Moses saw this bush that was on fire, and it tripped him out because it burned, but it didn't burn. It says it burned, but it was never consumed. So he drew close to look at it, and it says, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, called to him from the midst of the bush. And then it says, I am God. Well, first it says the messenger of God, then it says he is God. This goes on throughout the Bible. John is going to explain this to us in John chapter 1, the first few verses. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But one of the things I noticed in John's gospel is he identifies Jesus by seven different names or titles. He's identified as seven different titles. And I'm going to come back to this in a moment, so I'm going to keep it up there. The Word of God. So Jesus is called the Word of God in John chapter 1. He's called the true light in John chapter 1. He's called the only begotten in John chapter 1. He's called the Lamb of God. He's called the Son of God. He's called the Messiah. And he's called Rabbi. Seven things. And that's pretty cool if you know anything about how numbers are used in the Bible. Because the number seven, like seven days in the week, make for a full week. The number seven is considered the number of perfect, perfectness or completeness. Everything that you need is in the number seven. So the fact that Jesus is identified by seven names in the first chapter is kind of like this biblical hint that he's the perfect son of God. It's way cool. Seven titles. I mean, you think about it. There's a lot more he has in the Bible, but they only pick seven for here. How many titles do you have? Your, your Mr. or Mrs., Maybe your doctor or nurse. Maybe your teacher. Maybe your sensei. Maybe your master sergeant. So you probably got a couple. Mr., doctor, sergeant, grandma. Jesus has got dozens. Usually, you've probably seen the old movies. Introducing the Prince of Wales, Lord of the Seven Isles, Chief Pumbaa of the Mountaintops, Grand Pupa, you know, the, the more titles they add, the bigger you're supposed to be and the more impressed you're supposed to be. Well, there's actually some biblical merit to that. Jesus has got hundreds of titles in the Bible. He's, he's the biggest. We're going to look at only three of those. We don't have time to look at all seven. So we're going to look at the word, we're going to look at rabbi, and we're going to look at lamb. We'll start off with the word. In the beginning, this is the first sentence of John, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. The word was with God, and the word was God. The burning bush, the plural, the singular. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I told you, John's philosophical. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So this word, word, which by the way in Greek is logos or lagos. You can pronounce it either way. In the beginning was the lagos, and the lagos was with God, and the lagos was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the lagos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The lagos, according to John, is the creator. He exists with God and as God. Confused? 
You know, if God was easy to understand, he wouldn't be God. God is awesome. The word is mentioned, this word lagos, and uh, different words in the Hebrew, throughout the Bible. It doesn't just occur here in John for the first time as if, oh, this is some new idea. I never heard of this before. We see the word of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. It says something like this. The word of the Lord was sent to Jeremiah the prophet, saying. Now, when I first read that, I just thought it was like God's message came to Jeremiah. I never thought of it as like a person coming to Jeremiah or a being coming to Jeremiah and speaking to him. I just thought it was just, you know, euphemism for the message of God coming to Jeremiah. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's a person that's speaking face-to-face with somebody as God's messenger. And this word that John used, this word lagos, it's a very powerful word. In the days that he wrote it, the Greeks used it, the Romans used it, and the Jews used it. It was a philosophical word that the major people groups used, and they all had religious significance tied to it. Like for the Greeks, the word logos kind of meant wisdom, justice, truth in the universe. That's kind of what it meant for the Greeks. The Romans took it a little further and almost kind of personified it. Maybe I'm reaching a little here, but they made a god out of it. That's one way to put it. The Stoics followed the Lagos, which was wisdom sort of personified, sort of. Not really, but sort of. It's, It's weird. It's hard to explain, hard to understand. Plato, you know, Aristotle, those guys, they talked about the Lagos. And that Plato, what, 500 B.C. or something. So this word was already big back in the days of the Greeks. In fact, some people think that John stole it from the Greeks. But what they don't understand is that John comes from the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were at the height of their intellectual and their golden age when the Greeks were just crawling out of the mud. I mean, the golden age of Israel was 1,000 B.C. The golden age of Greece was 500 B.C., So there's 500 years of Jewish Bible already been written before the Greeks, anybody knew who the Greeks were. So if anything, Plato and his guys might have heard about it from the Jewish people and then made up his own concept on it. That would make more sense. This word, by the way, logos, the verb form of it, lego. (laughs) And guess what lego means? To put together or reason. So the people who made those little boxes, those little Lego, they knew what they were doing. They, they just took the Greek word for putting something together, and now they made a movie out of it and everything. <laughs> so the Jewish philosophers, the Greek philosophers, the Roman philosophers, they all talked about the Logos. Probably the most famous Jewish philosopher of that era, who's still quoted to this day, so big name. His name was Philo. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt. And he wrote extensively about the Logos. He lived the same time the apostles lived. Let me read to you from some articles about his perspective on the Logos. Listen. That in the one living and true God, there were two supreme and primary powers, goodness or creative power, and authority or ruling power. And that by his goodness... He had created everything, and that by his authority, he governed all he created. And the third thing 
which was between those two and had the effect of bringing them together was the Logos. For it was owing to the Logos that God was both ruler and good. He goes on. The Logos was of the highest of intermediary beings. Did you catch that? The Logos is the highest mediator between God and man, is what Philo taught. And was called by Philo, hold on, the firstborn of God. Notice one of those seven I told you Jesus was called, the only begotten of the Father. He's called the firstborn of God. He's called the mediator in John. Philo also wrote that the Logos was, the Logos of the living God is the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts. Colossians says that about Jesus. And he prevents them from being dissolved and separated. That's exactly what the Greek word says about Jesus in Colossians. So, we've got this Jewish philosopher named Philo who said that the Logos is the highest of all mediators between God and man. He was active in the creative powers and he holds the universe together and he's part of the Godhead, the third. They didn't have the word Trinity. They didn't know about the incarnation of Christ, but they knew so much. They were so close. So John took the concept that the Jewish people already knew, used the word, and kind of you know, rubbed off the rough edges to get people to understand the Logos for truly who he was. They were so close, but Philo didn't have it just right. So back to John. This is who John says the Logos is. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Ah, and then John says, the Logos became flesh and lived with us. Who's that? Jesus. Now, all the way back to this. First word of the Bible in Hebrew, in the beginning. One word in Hebrew. The next word in the Bible is he created. Now, if you read Hebrew, this word, if I did this, you would go, ah. So let's pretend you all know Hebrew. Thank you. I feel like I've got good company now. <laughs> Let me just tell you what you ought about. This Hebrew word, which means he created, what you see in that word is the word son. This is the Hebrew word for son. As in son of God, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So you pick up Genesis, you read it in Hebrew, you scratch your head. This doesn't make any sense. What's he talking about? You pick up John, and then you go, ah. Does that make sense? So, back to John. Yeshua, or Jesus, is called seven things in 1 John. I already told you what those were. One of those is word. The other one is rabbi. Logos refers to his deity, that he's divine, that he's God. Rabbi refers to the fact that he's also a man. So whereas the others emphasize his humanity, John emphasizes his deity, but John also mentions that he was a man. But that word rabbi is a very specific word. It tells us at least three things about Jesus. The first, of course, he was a human. He was a man. 
The second, he was a teacher. And the third, he was a Jew. Those three things we learned from that one word. Wow. Let me ask you a question. Was it important that Jesus was a human being, that he became a human? Yeah, it's not rhetorical. I wanted your answer. Um, is it important that he's a teacher? Yes. yes. Now, this one's a little scarier. Is it important that he was a Jew? You think so? You think if I asked most Christians that, they'd say yes? No. No, they wouldn't. If I were to stand up in your typical church and say, is it important that Jesus became a human? They'd go, yeah! Was it important that he became a teacher? And they'd all go, yeah! Was it important that he was a Jew? No, that wasn't important. He could have been anything. And yet, it's part of the three. His humanity is important because only as a human could he die for our sins. Him being a teacher is important because as a teacher, he shows us the way to follow God. Okay, I understand those two things, but why is it important that he was a Jew, Steve? Let me talk to you using Paul's words, the Apostle Paul. This is important because he was the apostle to the non-Jews. All the others were apostles to Jews. So let me tell you what the apostle to the non-Jews said about the importance of things Jewish. I'm quoting from Romans 9 and Romans 3. Listen. It's referring to Israel. They are God's people. He made them his children and revealed his glory to them. He made his covenants with them and gave them the law. They have the true worship. They have received God's promises. They are descended from the famous Hebrew ancestors. And Christ, as a human being, belongs to their race. May God, who rules over all, be praised forever. Amen. Then he goes on from chapter 3. Do the Jews then have any advantage over the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews? Or is there any value in being a Jew, that is, circumcised? And then Paul answers, yes, much, in every way. In the first place, God entrusted his divine message to the Jews. And then he goes on to talk more about the significance of Jewishness. I'm not saying you should become Jews. You know, we're followers of Jesus, and that's what God wants us to be. But God made Jesus a Jew. It was important that he did so. It was significant. And that word rabbi draws our attention to that. So, Logos shows us that Jesus is God. Rabbi shows us that Jesus is a man, specifically a Jewish man and a teacher. And thirdly, he's also called in John 1, the Lamb of God. John 1, 36 through 37 says this. When John the Baptist saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now, I'll read the rest in just a minute, but I want you to understand the significance of the rest. In those days, one of the highest of honors was to become the disciple of a famous rabbi. In our country, what are the highest of honors? Becoming a senator? Um, a movie star? A ball player? Okay, in our culture, those are the things we just, wow, he's famous, he's rich. In those days... You wanted to be at the top of the honor scale in the Jewish culture, you became the follower of a famous rabbi. And then, after years and years of training, you became known as a rabbi from that rabbi. It's pretty, pretty impressive. So to become a follower of a rabbi wasn't easy. 
It was like joining the NFL. You couldn't just say, okay, I'm going to become a famous football player. Uh-huh. Good luck with that. You'd have to come to the rabbi, and I'm just making this up because I don't know the system they use, but he might say, okay, so you want to be my student, huh? Yes. How well do you know the scriptures? Pretty well. How much of it have you memorized? Well, I've memorized the first five books of Moses. Go study some more. Come back when you know better. How many of you have the first books of Moses memorized? So a year passes, and you come back to the rabbi. Ah, I remember you. Have you studied more? Yes, I have. How much of the Bible have you memorized? I've memorized the whole thing. Have you? Very good. Come into my house. I want to talk to you. Then maybe he'll talk to him for a few days. And maybe the guy will make it. Maybe the guy won't make it. But if he becomes a disciple of that rabbi, wow. Now, having taught you that, the greatest rabbi of all times up until this point in history was John the Baptist. Can you imagine the honor and privilege of being a disciple of John the Baptist? Wow. They even thought he was the Messiah. Remember, this is the beginning. Nobody knows anything yet. They just knew he was one of the greatest men who ever lived, a great rabbi, a great teacher, a prophet, and they were his disciples. So now, check this out. When John the Baptist saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Later, John. You get it now? They, did, they didn't even look back. They were with the greatest man who ever lived. John pointed out Jesus, and they dropped him like a hot potato, man. Later, dude. And that was good. John wanted that to happen. John later said, I must decrease, but he must increase. So we know Jesus is the Lamb of God, but what does that mean? Well, John explains that, too. He explains what the word means. We learn about him, his humanity, and now we learn about the Lamb of God. John 1.29. The next day... John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Calling Jesus the Lamb of God means that he's the one that saves us from our sins. He was the sacrificial lamb. He would die as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our sins and acceptable to God. As a teacher, Jesus can show us the way. As God, he has the power to make the way. And as a man, he dies for our sins to pave the way. He says in verses 10 through 12, and I'm finishing up here. This is what John says in verses 10 through 12. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him or by him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right or the power to become the children of God. So I told you, as a rabbi, he shows us the way. And as the man, the lamb, he paves the way. So what's the way? To those receive him and those who believe in his name, he gives the right or the power to become the children of God. Jesus is the way our job is to receive him, to believe in him. But what's it mean to receive him? Probably the most famous New Testament verse is found in John, two chapters later. And you probably have seen it all over football stadiums and even on people's faces, John 3.16. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came as the Lamb of God to die for our sins. That benefits us if we receive him, if we believe in him. What's it mean to receive him? To trust him for your soul, to turn from your sin and pledge your allegiance to him. Remember I told you it was the greatest of honors to follow a famous rabbi? Nobody would pass up the opportunity. You have the opportunity to follow the most famous rabbi who's ever lived, who's not just a rabbi, but he's the Logos. He's the Word of God made flesh. No greater honor can be yours. No greater privilege in the universe can be yours than to walk with Jesus. And all you have to do is tell Jesus you're willing to follow him. And I urge you to do so. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for coming to earth as a, a mere mortal to rescue us, to redeem us. There's several people in here this morning who love you and follow you. But maybe there are some that have not yet chosen to become your disciple. I pray, Lord God, that you would touch their hearts, put, put it within them, the desire to follow you, and to be saved from their sins. Amen.